From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Time, and this hour, Ron Elving on the first primary and a budget agreement for now. Also, are voters feeling better about the economy? And another British actor takes the role of an American icon. Clive Owen plays Sam Spade. I actually got an original Maltese Falcon on my wall at home, so when Scott, Frank, and Tom Fontana called me up and pitched me the whole idea, I turned around, took a picture of the poster, and said, you've come to the right guy. But Monsieur Spade brings the Fog City gumshoe to small-town France. And then we have new music from Portland, Slater Kinney. First, we have our newscast. Today is Saturday, January 20, 2024. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. President Biden says a two-state solution in the Middle East is still possible with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in power. This after Netanyahu publicly reiterated that he rejects a proposed two-state solution. NPR's Deepa Shivaram has details. President Biden says there are a number of types of two-state solutions, and he says there are still, quote, ways in which this could work, referring to working with Netanyahu on how the region will be governed after the war ends. Biden says that he thinks he can convince Netanyahu on a two-state solution, quote, given the right one. The president spoke to Netanyahu today over the phone, and the topic of a two-state solution came up, Biden says. It's the first time they've spoken in nearly a month as Israel's bombardment of Gaza has killed nearly 25,000 Palestinians. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, the White House. Two high-ranking Iranian military advisors are reported to have been killed in an apparent Israeli airstrike on a building in the Syrian capital, Damascus. The state-run press TV in Iran says they were members of Iran's powerful Revolutionary Guard. The BBC's Sebastian Usher reports. A big plume of smoke rose above the multi-story building in the upmarket district of Mazeh in Damascus in what Syrian state media says was most likely to have been an Israeli airstrike. A security source linked to groups that have supported the Syrian government has said the building was used by Iranian advisers who played a key role in keeping President Assad in power. The source said that a member of the powerful Iranian Revolutionary Guards was among those killed. There's been no comment from Israel so far. For years, it's carried out attacks on Iranian-linked targets in Syria. Those strikes have become deadlier and more intense since the war with Hamas erupted. The BBC Sebastian Usher. Following freezing rain and powerful gusts that led to a statewide emergency declaration, Oregonians are enjoying warmer weather. As Brian Bull of member station KLCC and Eugene reports, recovery efforts continue. The ice storms caused massive power outages and immobilized traffic. Over a dozen deaths are blamed on the severe weather. At the Cascades Raptor Center in Eugene, falling trees crushed several aviaries. A downed power pole is hampering access as well. Bird curator Kit Lacey says this rescue and rehab facility sustained at least $30,000 in damages, but all three dozen hawks, owls, and eagles are safe. We have some of our intrepid volunteers gathering debris. We're constantly trying to see where all the widow makers are because we can't open until the site is safe. Across Oregon, residents are dealing with damaged roofs, burst pipes, and spoiled food. For NPR News, I'm Brian Bull in Eugene. Across the nation, there are warnings of brutal cold as an Arctic air mass spreads from the Midwest and Plain states to the East Coast, below freezing temperatures reported as far south as the state of Mississippi. This is NPR News in Washington. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Very cold weather is forecast for the entire weekend. The National Weather Service says the lowest wind chills are expected tonight. More people who are experiencing homelessness are turning to emergency shelters. John Yeswinski is with the group Father Bills in Mainspring. He says they're making more room at their facilities in Quincy, Brockton, and Plymouth. With the temperatures, knowing that there's a 40% increase of unsheltered people, we've had to convert our common spaces, our cafeterias, our conference rooms, our offices. The city of Boston is opening warming centers. Massachusetts General Hospital is asking, again, for state approval to add 94 inpatient beds. Hospital leaders say they don't have enough space to take care of all the sick patients who need care. WBUR's Priyanka Dayal McCluskey has more. Every day, dozens of patients wait hours in Mass General's ER until doctors can find them beds. The hospital's chief financial officer, Sally Mason Bamer, says the crowding is unsustainable. We just can't provide the type of healing environment we would want for patients in hallways and in an overcrowded emergency room. State officials previously approved a $2 billion construction project at Mass General, but denied a request to add beds. Bamer hopes they'll reconsider. I'm very concerned that the longer this capacity crisis goes on, the harder that type of working environment is for our staff. Mass General is already the state's biggest hospital. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal McCluskey. A 2013 Boston Marathon runner who became a symbol of resilience when he was thrown to the ground after the first bomb exploded has died. Bill Ifrig was 89 years old. A Boston Globe photographer captured an iconic photo of him with three Boston police officers near him. The photo was featured on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Last night, for the first time this season, after a 20-game undefeated streak at the Garden, the Celtics lost a home game. The Seas lost to the Nuggets 102-100. to Tonight at the Garden, the Bruins take on the Montreal Canadiens. It is 14 degrees in Boston. Cloudy today, highs in the 20s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thanks for joining us. The record close for the S&P 500 is the enthusiasm flowing from the trading floor to the breakfast table. That in a few minutes, but first, the voting part of this election year has finally started. Iowa caucuses this Monday passed. New Hampshire votes in a Republican presidential primary this coming Tuesday. NPR's Ron Elving joins us. Ron, thanks for being with us. Good to be with you, Scott. At long last, actual votes. Does Donald Trump's win in the Iowa caucuses tip anything to you about New Hampshire? Trump's easy win in Iowa was what we expected, half for Trump, half for all the others. So even though turnout was way down from last time, the one big story out of Iowa was Trump. Will that sway New Hampshire to follow suit? Perhaps. But the Granite State has often been rocky ground for the Iowa winner. The results can be different, even contradictory. Some people like to say New Hampshire corrects Iowa, or at least edits it. So we'll see if Nikki Haley can breathe new life. Trump has been treating her like a threat this week. Still, it's hard to imagine anything that would keep Trump from wrapping up the nomination as early as March. 
And yet, Trump is on trial in almost as many states as he's running uh, for the presidency. At some point, some court is going to deliver verdicts. What are the implications and complications you see for the campaign year? The U.S. Supreme Court will hear arguments next week on Trump's eligibility to be on the ballot. Uh, given his role in the January 6th riot at the Capitol, was it an insurrection? Was it, was it something Trump was engaged in? Uh, some believe the answers to those questions disqualify him from federal office for life. But will this Supreme Court come down on that side? Meanwhile, Trump is involved in two trials in New York that could cost him tens of millions of dollars, even hundreds of millions, and several criminal cases in state and federal court that could lead to felony convictions. Now, some polls say that would not affect Trump's hardcore supporters at all. They might even be catnip for them. But Trump also needs votes from beyond his hardcore base, and some polling suggests a court conviction might make at least some of his past supporters reconsider. Lights are still on in the U.S. government for another couple of months. How did Congress avoid the shutdown? Mike Johnson, the current Speaker of the House, did what he had to do. He took the deal approved by the Senate and put it on the House floor, where it passed easily because it had support from Democrats as well as Johnson's own Republicans. How about that? Seems like a bipartisan success story, doesn't it? But, but similar moves by Johnson's predecessor, Kevin McCarthy, cost McCarthy his job last year. So far, the party rebels who went after McCarthy have not made a move against Johnson, but a shutdown will loom again in March, and the stakes will be even higher. Ron, elsewhere in the program today, we ask NPR correspondents from around uh, the world about the state of democracy, and they say there has been an erosion in democracy in many parts of the world they cover, and America is less respected as a democracy since January 6, 2021. Do you think voters in America share that opinion? Today is January 20th, Scott. We are one year out from the next Inauguration Day. Unprecedented numbers of Americans now say democracy is under pressure or under threat here in our country. A clear majority in both parties expresses anxiety about the survival of democracy. Republicans say democracy was wounded in 2020, asserting the election was stolen or compromised because, well, Trump says it was. Democrats point to Trump's statements about being a dictator, at least for a day, if elected again. And even independents worry that the culture wars and partisan animosity have reached a point of no return. NPR's Ron Elving, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. Stock market is up, gas prices are down, and ordinary Americans may be feeling a little better about the economy. NPR's chief economic correspondent, Scott Horsley, joins us. Scott, thanks so much for being with us. Great to be with you, Scott. There's some new polling numbers, right? There are, and what they tell us is that things are looking up a little bit. We're talking about the University of Michigan's survey of consumer sentiment, uh, and it shows that people felt better about the economy in January than they did in December, and they felt better in December than the month before that. In fact, over the last two months, we've seen the biggest improvement in consumer sentiment in more than three decades. Now, don't start playing Happy Days or Here Again just yet. On the whole, people's economic attitudes are still not all that sunny, but they are moving up. And Joanne Shu, who runs the Michigan survey, says this is an important inflection point. They're feeling okay. Trending upwards, feeling okay, but not great. You know, for a while, there's been a lot of talk about the apparent disconnect between a lot of the economic data, which shows, you know, inflation's coming down, unemployment's really low, the economy's growing at a pretty healthy clip, and surveys which show people are still 
pretty gloomy. Uh, you wrote about that disconnect in your newsletter this week, Scott. What this new survey tells us is that people are starting to take note of all the positive economic developments, and their gloom is starting to lift just a bit. Scott, what might be behind the shift? You know, it's probably a combination of things, but a couple obvious candidates might be the price of gasoline, which is hovering close to $3 a gallon nationwide, lower than that in a lot of states, and the stock market, which has been hitting record highs. In fact, the S&P 500 index closed at an all-time high just yesterday. Even though most people don't own a lot of stock, a rising market tends to make people feel a little better. And, of course, gas prices are always something people pay attention to. It's no coincidence that the worst consumer sentiment ever recorded was back in the summer of 22 when gas prices were at their all-time peak. Pump prices are a lot lower now. And even with all the turmoil we've had in the Middle East in the last few months, gas prices have not spiked the way people might have feared. That seems to be helping people feel more confident that the progress we've seen on inflation is here to stay. Overall, prices are still higher than people would like, no question about that, but they do see the trend line moving in a positive direction. And what are the political consequences, potentially? President Biden's approval rating on the economy is still quite low, uh, but the first step of getting out of a hole is to start going up rather than down, so I'm sure his campaign advisors are watching these sentiment numbers closely. Overall, sentiment is still below the long-run average, but it is trending up, uh, more so for Democrats and independents, but even among Republicans, sentiment is getting better. Shu says that is an indication of just how widespread this turnaround has been. Notably, we saw improvements in sentiment across all demographic groups across income, age, education, geography. It was really a consensus. This isn't something that happens often. So this is not a, a blip in the patterns. This really is an improvement. The last time we saw a two-month turnaround this big was back in 1991, when the U.S. was just coming out of a recession. Of course, this time around, we didn't have a recession. We actually had a pretty good economy, even if a lot of people didn't feel like it. I will say that improvement in sentiment back in 1991 was not enough to save the first President Bush. Uh, he went on to lose his re-election bid the following year to Bill Clinton. Obviously, a lot can happen between now and November, but for the moment, at least, economic sentiment is moving in a positive direction. NPR Scott Horsley, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for being with us. Good to be with you. The new George Carlin special is out, but it's not really George Carlin, the brilliant and audacious comedian who died in 2008, just days after he was named to receive the Mark Twain Prize for American Humor. Of course, he's also remembered for uttering what are called the seven dirty words in a routine the FCC considered indecent and said could not be broadcast without being This new so-called special is an AI production on YouTube presented by Dudesy. It calls itself a comedy AI. Dudesy calls the production George Carlin, I'm glad I'm dead, even as Dudesy's first words are, what you're about to hear is not George Carlin. But the voice also insists to those under 20, I'm the only George Carlin. Whatever this comedy special is, Kelly Carlin, George Carlin's daughter, told us it is not born from my father and should not have his name on it. Dudesy explains that AI absorbed thousands of hours of George Carlin's routines to fabricate a semblance of his voice and concoct what they call a George Carlin routine for today. It features AI jokes about Donald Trump, new technology, Taylor Swift, and lots and lots of and my dad spent a lifetime perfecting his craft from his very human life, brain, and imagination, Kelly Carlin added. 
These AI-generated products are attempts to recreate a mind that will never exist again. She says her family is exploring how to legally protect her father's work from AI manipulation. Dudzie insists it's George Carlin is similar to an impressionist who impersonates a public figure, like Austin Butler playing Elvis, Jay Farrow doing Denzel Washington, or everyone imitating Donald Trump. But Jim Eskimen, who may be the world's best impressionist, told us he considers AI imitations more like watching a Roomba carry a football 50 yards. There's no link to an actual living person whose creative energies we recognize and admire. None of what I heard was funny, he says of the special. It was AI making a joke and then laughing and applauding itself. I dipped into the production. It seemed to go big name, bad joke, dirty word, canned laughter. It was something the real late George Carlin never was. Predictable. As Jim Eskimen put it for us in his George Carlin voice. I'm not George Carlin. And even when I'm dead, I'm not predictable. So grateful that they put those beeps in. <laughs> You're listening to NPR News. Thanks for starting your Saturday with 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Some new pop-up public art in downtown Boston is not for everyone. It's just weird. Like, it kind of is concerning because it looks like a person about to jump. WBUR's Amelia Mason takes a closer look. That's coming up in 15 minutes here on WBUR's Weekend Edition. It is 14 degrees in Boston at 818. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Celebrity Series with What Makes It Great, featuring A Far Cry, exploring Tchaikovsky's Serenade for Strings, February 3rd, CelebritySeries.org, and Elizabeth Bain of Commonwealth Standard Realty, providing guidance and advice to buyers and sellers throughout Greater Boston. More at ElizabethBainHomes.com. I'm Louise Schiavone with these headlines. With the New Hampshire presidential primary vote now three days away, former GOP presidential hopeful Senator Tim Scott has turned his back on fellow South Carolinian Nikki Haley, throwing his support to former President Donald Trump. Israeli forces have continued their intense bombardment of the city of Khan Yunus in southern Gaza. The Israeli army says its troops found six rocket launchers when they raided what it described as a military compound. The latest winter storm has moved away from the northeast, but it's left snow and an Arctic blast of icy conditions for the weekend and into Monday morning. I'm Louise Schiavone, NPR News, Washington.
Support for NPR comes from the station and from Staples with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. This week saw rising unrest in the Middle East stretch into Central Asia. Iran struck at a target it claimed was an Israeli spy headquarters in northern Iraq. It also attacked what it claimed to be terrorist groups in northwest Syria. Then on Tuesday, it launched a series of strikes against neighboring Pakistan. Pakistan struck back on Thursday. Each country claims the other is harboring terrorists. These strikes come at a time when the war between Hamas and Israel has already sparked tensions in the region. Masoud Mostajabi is deputy director of the Atlantic Council's Middle East programs and joins us now. Mr. Mostajabi, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. What set off these strikes? So this week's attacks in particular were likely to have been both an aggressive demonstration of Iran's technological advances, particularly its expansive missile arsenal and fleet of drones, and a reminder that it is a regional power with a clear willingness to strike, particularly having itself just witnessed major terror attacks in the city of Kerman, a separatist attacks in the southeast region of the country, the death of a high-level IRGC commander in Syria, and several other fatalities among uh, senior Axis of Resistance uh, associates. More so, I think, Iran's willingness to strike what it considers its adversaries is partly a venting of anger, partly a warning, and partly a sales pitch to its current and future customers. There's a need to question whether they might have chosen to carry out all these strikes to test some of their more advanced missiles under combat conditions, for example, and or to send a message to Israel and the West, or potentially do both. You mentioned a sales pitch for Iran to be able to sell their arsenal internationally. Right. The standard missiles that Iran provides groups like Ansar Allah in Yemen or the Houthis or Hezbollah in Lebanon, when combined with drones, can overwhelm air defenses. But the missiles that were used in particular in Syria, what is they call the Khaybar Shikan, sets itself apart from these other systems because of the greater range and higher accuracy than previous Iranian missiles. Solid propellant precision missile, 1,400 plus kilometer, about 900 miles, making capable of reaching Israel. And an actual strike makes a point that, uh, (laughs) just to forgive me, a traditional sales pitch wouldn't. Yeah. The view from Tehran striking in Syria was to both uh, threaten and display to Israel in the West these weapons capabilities. And so given the fact that, for example, the Russians are buying a number of drones that they're using in their own theater and war against Ukraine, this is uh, just an area for them to be able to display their technological advances in this field, both again in drones and in uh, their missile systems. Mm -hmm. Mr. Mustajabi, any concern that groups in Afghanistan might be drawn in because both those countries share a border with Afghanistan? I don't believe so. Quite honestly, I think Iran 
the, the Iranian government made a significant strategic uh, mistake in targeting Pakistan as it did. Iran has the Western theaters that it is more so focused on in Iraq and Syria, as we've touched on in Lebanon. And so I don't believe that they would want to push for another front with Afghanistan. This is a country in particular with the Taliban that the Iranian government has had a history of conflict and issues with, particularly in the late 1990s. But I think what is really important to mention and what is being overlooked by the international community is the complex local paradigm in this region. For example, the fact that both Iran and Pakistan have bombed their own people and many refugees in this area in the Baluchistan uh, on the Iranian side, as well as the uh, Pakistani side, and now, you know, obviously doing so in their own uh, respective uh, countries. But nonetheless, both have faced internal threats from the Baluch communities, and both have been unable to deal with them in a way to dissuade them from extremism. Although, obviously, it's essential to clarify and very strongly that the majority of Baluch in both countries are not extremists. What specifically could happen would Pakistan step up their attacks beyond reprisal that we've already seen? Yeah, you know, I don't believe the Pakistanis are going to. I think they saw this as a proportionate response. And I think Iran likely calculated that this is absorbable for them. And so this is likely where this, you know, uh, ends for both. But to my mind, there actually is an opportunity for both sides. They have had a history of intelligence sharing between uh, both countries, uh, particularly addressing uh, the challenges posed by Daesh or ISIS. So to my mind, the opportunity is to reassess and establish something of a border management system that effectively addresses the security concerns of both countries. Masoud Mostajabi is Deputy Director of the Atlantic Council's Middle East programs. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. The work of a city council might seem pretty practical, but it's no less a place where history can be made. Inauguration Day felt full of emotion, full of optimism, um, a, a sense, a, a gravity, right? An appropriate gravity of the magnitude of the work ahead of us, but also um, just a lot of hope. The elected city council members in St. Paul, Minnesota are now all women, all under the age of 40 and almost all women of color. Tomorrow on Weekend Edition Sunday, Aisha Roscoe talks with two members. You can listen tomorrow morning by telling your smart speaker or phone to play your NPR member station by name. Sarah Jane Conlon's novel, Radiant Heat, begins with her protagonist, Alison King, who is an artist still alive and finally breathing air after she's been hiding under a wet blanket from a wildfire. She begins to move around, then finds a car in her driveway. A woman is dead inside. She is a stranger to Alison. But why does she have Alison's name and address in her purse? Radiant Heat is set in Australia. It is the debut novel from Sarah Jane Collins, an Australian writer who now lives in New York, and she joins us from our bureau there. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. The woman in the car has a name on her driver's license, Simone Arnold. And she does seem to have a lot of superficial traits in common with Alison, doesn't she? She does, yes. That's the intrigue that Alison has to wrestle with. What does she notice? 
first she notices that they both lived in uh, Cairns, which is a smaller city in the north of Australia, quite mm-hmm. far from where the book is set. She also notices that they're around the same age and that they sort of look a little similar to each other. What do uh, the police make of the dead woman in the car who turns out to have all these potential connections with Allison? They're pretty dismissive at first. They think that this woman is just trying to escape the fire, which if you've ever been caught on a highway in the middle of a fire, you might turn up any street that is familiar to you. And because Alison panics a little when she finds her address in the woman's purse, at first the police don't even know that the woman was actually looking for Alison because she keeps that back, that information back just to herself. And she can't even really explain to herself why she does that. It's just an impulsive thing that she decides to do. Tell us about this part of Australia in which the story is set. So the town itself uh, does not exist. It's fake. But it's in the same region as a number of small towns that were ravaged by a very serious bushfire in 2009, which was known as the Black Saturday Bushfire. That fire ripped through regional Victoria and killed 173 people. It was, at the time, the most devastating natural disaster bushfire that Australia had ever seen. And um, these towns that these fires happened in are kind of on the outskirts of Melbourne, which is the capital of Victoria. You were working at a newspaper then, weren't you, in in 2009? Yeah, Yeah, I I was um, was two years out of my cadetship as a, a journalist for the Age newspaper, which was Melbourne's broadsheet newspaper. And at the time of the fires, I was covering the county court of Victoria, which is sort of the mid-tier court. And so I was not sent out to cover the actual fires, but I was then moved to the state politics office and spent most of the next year following the premier of Victoria around as he announced reconstruction projects. And so I met a lot of people who had been through those fires in the year after they occurred. And they stayed with you when writing this novel, in a sense? They really did. And um, really, it's my time working at the age that informs most of this book, not just the fire, but also that time covering the court system and being exposed to some of the more upsetting elements of criminal law and seeing the extent of uh, violence against women in Australia. Even when it is reported you don't really, you just get the tip. You're not, you're not seeing the whole iceberg essentially. And so because I was sort of doused in it every single day, it was, <laughs> it's quite confronting. And that was something that also stayed with me and very much informs what happens in Radiant Heat. Yeah. Well, with, without giving too much away, we discovered that Alison and Simone have that history in common too, sort of, don't they? Yes. Yes. And that is part of, I think, what motivates Alison to try and find our way to find some sort of justice for Simone and also for herself. Whether or not she achieves that is also kind of something that I really wrestled with in in writing the book because we often don't see justice in these situations. What are some of the many reasons that, uh, that at least as we've seen so far in our justice system prevent that from being realized? I think it's a really hard area of law It's so personal. A lot of women are just unwilling to come forward in the first instance. And then when they do, there is a lot more doubt. I think we're quick as a society to not want to believe that the worst things are happening. 
And it becomes easier to say, oh, well, there isn't any evidence of this aside from what this person is saying. So, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt is very hard to achieve. May I ask, when you were a um, criminal courts reporter, was there a part of you that was preparing to become a novelist that was salting away information, stories, the look in people's eyes? Yeah, I mean, I think if you're a good newspaper journalist, you should always be kind of squirreling that stuff away anyway to write your piece and to give people the colour of the courtroom in a way that brings them into the space. Uh, so I guess I learned from some pretty grizzled <laughs> court reporters the things to look for and to keep an eye on and not just how to take accurate shorthand notes of what people were saying, but to observe what else was going on around me. And I think as well, I became, personally became a, um, a newspaper journalist because when I was a little girl, I wanted to be a novelist, but I thought that wasn't really a financially sensible path. And so I decided what was the next best thing. It was to write for a newspaper. And that was obviously many years ago now before the internet kind of destroyed traditional publishing. Um, I, I sort of think <laughs> right, that... When, when that seemed like a good idea. Yeah, yeah. right. Exactly. It's like, I, I feel like it's a bad joke now to say, oh, when I was a kid, I thought I'll grow up and be a newspaper journalist because that's a solid career path. Of course, a huge fire looms over the story as it uh, as it has over much of Australia in in recent years. And I was touched by some words you have near the end of this novel. Throw yourself on the mercy of the wind. Mm -hmm. How do we do that? <laughs> um, you know, when I wrote that, I was thinking a lot about some of the first person accounts I read of Black Saturday, um, where people talked about how literally they would not exist still today in the world if the wind had not changed at a certain moment in time. How out of our control, really, our lives can be. In particularly in the face of sort of the, it's it's not the right word, but the awesomeness of such a powerful fire and how there's only so much you can do to protect yourself against really anything. You just have to have a little bit of faith in living and hopefully you'll be okay. Sarah Jane Collins, her novel, Radiant Heat. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. By now, you may have seen the photos of a pair of giant inflatable clown heads wedged between two buildings near Downtown Crossing. This is one of 16 public art pieces installed in downtown Boston in a bid to increase wintertime foot traffic. WBUR's Amelia Mason headed into the city to check out some of the other provocative displays. It's snowing in Boston, and the trains are delayed. People shuffle along the slushy sidewalks, heads down. But one thing is able to stop them in their tracks. A 60-foot-long whale made of skeletal steel beams. What do you guys think? Do you like it? Yeah. <laughs> Michael Nichols is the president of the downtown Boston Business Improvement District, which commissioned the sculpture. 
The whale was the first of 16 public artworks to appear in the neighborhood in mid-December. The point of the whale is to draw visitors to Boston's downtown. So this is Bromfield Street, a street that you know has struggled a little bit more um, post-COVID. It's got a Nichols leads us down a quieter street to a sculpture by the American artist Mark Jenkins. It's one of several hyper-realistic human figures in unrealistic locations that now pepper the neighborhood. It's this gentleman hanging from the bottom of the fire escape here. The figure is dressed all in black with a hoodie pulled over his head. He's upside down, defying gravity as he walks along the underside of the fire escape. I don't think I would have noticed it. Mike McCart of Boston stops to take a photo. He says it reminds him of a painting by M.C. Escher. Because it's very similar to the picture where you have these ascending and descending staircases and people are walking up and down and you can't really tell what's up and what's down. So this guy's actually walking on the underside of a staircase. I guess down a staircase, I don't know. <laughs> Little Spider-Man effect. Another Jenkins sculpture hangs some 30 feet in the air, a few blocks away over the entrance to Winter Street. A woman on a swing, silhouetted against the heavy white sky. Daryl Ann Gain McCalla of Roxbury is not impressed. It's just weird, like, it kind of, it's concerning because it looks like a person about to jump. She's not the first to have that reaction. The city already removed another Jenkins sculpture in response to emergency calls from concerned citizens. But McCalla, an artist who goes by Miranda Wrights, has another beef with the installation. If it speaks to me, if it moves me, I love public art. But there's a problem that a lot of art is not public art. It's art in public that the public has no say in. McCalla says there aren't enough opportunities for Boston artists to get big commissions like this one. She thinks a local would be able to make connections with the city's history that outsiders can't. As we head down the street, Nichols says that nearly all the art his organization has presented in past years has been by local artists. This time, they worked with three curators from Canada who brought in work from around the world. We should not, though, as a city, exclusively focus on local artists. We uh, should not, right? What? We should. This is a cosmopolitan city, is a major American city. It has you know, a, a wonderful opportunity to connect the art and artists and their messages of the world to inform and entertain our local audiences. And then as a result, our local audiences get influenced by that and develop and redevelop their own artwork. One of the final installations is going up on the sidewalk outside Macy's. Workers are installing four bicycles that light up and play music when you pedal them. Sherry Cresta of Revere stops to watch. One of the workers invites her to hop on. As Cresta pedals faster, the bike starts to play Shipping Up to Boston by the Dropkick Murphys. Impulsively, Cresta grabs her hat from off her head and flings it into the air. Afterwards, she's giddy. It was amazing. I had a liver transplant, so... Oh my gosh. It's hard to breathe sometimes, but... Okay, well, take take a breath and let me let, me let you no, breathe. No, I need exercise. That's the whole point. Oh, that was awesome. When the bikes are fully installed, they'll project images onto the sidewalk when you pedal them. Hearing this, Cresta says she'll definitely come back. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amelia Mason. The installation will be on view through April 14th.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums, with over 50 galleries of art spanning the centuries. Free admission every day, open Tuesday through Sunday. HarvardArtMuseums.org. The Boston Celtics are no longer undefeated in home games this season. The 20-game home winning streak at the Garden ended last night when the Seas lost to the defending NBA champion Denver Nuggets, 102-100. to Tonight at the Garden, the Bruins take on the Montreal Canadiens. It is 14 degrees in Boston. Cloudy today, highs in the low 20s, wind chill values as low as zero. Low around 14 degrees tonight, a sunny Sunday tomorrow's highs in the mid-20s. Four years after the first U.S. case of COVID was confirmed, the pandemic for many can feel pretty distant. We hear what you're experiencing. We take it seriously. We think we have not, as a Congress, done anywhere near enough, and we hope to turn that around. I'm Scott Detrow, the latest on long COVID and all things considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Cunard, sailing the transatlantic crossing between New York and London on Queen Mary 2. With a commitment to White Star service, fine dining, and entertainment, cunard.com crossing. From Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side by side. More at progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. At first, AMC's new series, Moscow Spade, may sound like a fish-out-of-water story. Sam Spade, the trench-coated San Francisco private eye stranded in small-town France. Oh, je voudrais tant que tu te souviennes. Within a few minutes, you see, he's happy. He's found a place to fit as he tries to quit smoking and recover from the loss of a love. Then he gets called back into service. Mr. Spade. Teresa. Help me. Monsieur Spade is created by Scott Frank and Tom Fontana, the executive producer. And starring as Sam Spade is Clive Owen, the esteemed British actor who joins us now from New York. Thanks so much for being with us. No problem. Thanks for having me. Why did you want to play Sam Spade of all characters? I'm actually a huge fan of the genre. I'm a big fan of the the Dashiell Hammett book. I'm a big fan of the movie. I've actually got an original Maltese Falcon on my wall at home. So when Scott Frank and Tom Fontana called me up and pitched me the whole idea. I turned around, took a picture of the poster and said, you've come to the right guy. Anyone who plays Spade has to deal with the shadow of Humphrey Bogart? Yes, they do. And how did you do that? I did probably the opposite of what a lot of people do. I think a lot of actors would think I want to go in there and put my personal spin on it and make this character my own. I wanted to go in and just be very faithful to the original source material. I'm a huge Bogart fan, so I used it as an opportunity to go back, watch all the films, listen to his cadences, his rhythms, and try and, and, and use them. When a man's partner's killed, he's supposed to do something about it. It doesn't make any difference what you thought of him. He was your partner, and you're supposed to do something about it. People come to you with their problems, and you end up inheriting those problems. But you're good at fixing them, so the problems keep coming. 
you know, we're, we're taking it into the early 60s in the south of France. The guy still has to have the origins and feel like the guy's traveled from that time in San Francisco. So, and I, because I'm in France and working predominantly with French actors, I needed a kind of, I needed a base, I needed a grounding, and Bogart helped me do that. He seems to be happy in France. What brings him there? Um, well, we join the story. He's, he's, he's been given a mission of going to deliver a young girl to her parents, and uh, it doesn't quite go as planned. And, but during that trip that we see in flashbacks, um, he meets somebody and ends up falling in love. So we jump between sort of the mid-50s and early 60s and see that he's actually settled there and he's trying at the beginning of the thing to to live a quiet life. I want to say this carefully, but um, this series contains, I think, probably the only genuinely funny prostate exam scene I've ever seen. <laughs> I think that Scott is playing around with a lot of the cliches that come with these kind of characters and the wire thing, so... You know, you know, there is a prostate exam and he's told he's got to give up smoking. So we take away the smoking. There's My line to Scott throughout the whole series was, I've been duped. I've been duped. I don't get the hat. I don't get the coat. I don't get the gun. I have to give up smoking. Like, oh, I want to play Sam Spade. Well, what is this? He's confronting the messy business of mortality in himself in a way, isn't he? He certainly is, yeah. And it's a nice spin on it because... Having been attached years ago, I was a studio got the rights for me to to play Shanda's Marlowe, and we tried for a number of years to get a, a, a really good script together, and it was very difficult because I think with noir that everybody feels that they know it; it's so familiar, and as soon as you start to do the cliches, it feels a little like people go on the back foot and they go, "Oh yeah, I know what this is." I, I think taking that as a thing of an older Sam Spade who's not quite the guy he was totally in a new environment, trying to live a quiet life, it already spins noir into something different and sort of it reinvigorates it in a way. Is this a particularly propitious time to bring Sam Spade back? Because? Well, I want you to finish the sentence. <laughs> um, there is a reason that these characters are still around. We still talk about Marlowe and Spade, and why is that? I mean, I, I was shocked when someone pointed out, like, the Maltese Falcon is nearly 80 years old, which is crazy to me. But, you know, that you have to ask why are they around, and I suppose they're, they're kind of moral people. They're, they're guys that are very, very tough, but they they have to do the right thing. So, in you know, in our series and in this situation, he's trying to live a quiet life, but if things are wrong and things are bad... He can't help himself. He has to go in and deal with it. And we know he's going to try and do the right thing. And I think ultimately, however tough, hard-boiled, however mean he can be to people, you know that he's trying to be decent. And I think we like that. Do you think lifting Spade out of his um, his customary environs helps us see him more clearly? Um I wanted it to feel like the origins of the guy was that guy, and I wanted to, you know, really dig into that great 40s noir thing, but just to do it in a different context. But it's it was tricky because I'm surrounded by French actors, so I'm not in San Francisco. I'm not surrounded by people doing, you know, that kind of 40s yeah. accent, but I wanted to bed it in that, so... 
that's because I wanted you to feel that that's where it come from. Can Sam Spade be happy? No. Can anybody? Oh. You just put a dagger in my heart I wasn't <laughs> expecting. I hope. I mean, are you pretty happy in life? Um, that's a big word. I think it was uh, George Bernard Shaw who said, you know, happiness is about just finding things you enjoy doing and keep doing them so that you don't have to think about whether you're happy or not. Clive Owen, happily, is Moncho Spade. Now on AMC, streaming on AMC+. Plus. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. In the mid-1990s, two young guitarists in Washington State began to play together in their time off from other bands. Hell don't have no worries. Hell don't have no past. Hell is just a signpost when you take a certain they took a name was right in front of them, Slater Kinney, from the interstate exit closest to their practice space. 30 years later, Slater Kinney is out with its 11th album, Little Rope. And we're joined now by those two musicians, Carrie Brownstein and Corin Tucker both in Portland. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Scott. I've got to begin with that song. You don't hear a lot of songs about hell. <laughs> I mean, there are more songs about, you know, New York, Chicago, heaven for that matter. Why did you want to do a song about hell? Corin Tucker? Yeah, please. I think that song kind of came from a moment of revelation about the kind of culture of violence that we live with in the United States and how we've come to sort of normalize it as something that is an everyday occurrence. And and so the, the it's really meant to be a metaphor about living with that and and feeling like it's, you know, it's taken up space in our everyday life and just, you know, having a moment to sort of reckon with that. Uh, and Carrie Brownstein, how are you dealing with it emotionally? I mean, the, some of the lyrics are just overwhelming. For me, the song Hell is about embracing the mess, reconstituting and kind of reclaiming it. You know, not, not thinking of it as a, as a place to banish oneself, but a place to, mm -hmm. to reform ourselves, a place to just come to terms with I think some of the realities and, and the ugliness and maybe transform that into something that's powerful. Carrie Brownstein, hope you don't mind. I have to ask you about a tough period you went through just a couple years ago, even less. Uh, your mother and stepfather died in a car accident. First, how are you doing? And was music a kind of light that helped guide you out of darkness? Uh, well, I'm okay, as you know, anyone is or can be after sort of the structure of your life is dismantled in a really sudden way. As everything around me was misshapen, music, it was a form that I knew. Playing guitar is something I've done since I was in my teenage years. And the ritual of placing my hands on, on the guitar neck and the fretboard 
that was a solidity, that was a constant. And I think when you are thrust into a, a place that is incoherent, music, it's words, it's language, it's something to repeat and a ritual that I really understood. So I, I really needed it. I needed to hear Corin's voice. She has a voice that's bigger than me. And I felt quite diminished. And this band is bigger than me. Let me ask you about another track. Say it like you mean it. Go softly. have to say goodbye at some point and you know it kind of is meant to take the listener on a journey and some of it is sad and some of it is angry because that's kind of the price you pay for loving someone that goodbye is coming at some point. And I know it sounds like it's a downer, but it's meant to actually be sort of live life while you have it. Mm -hmm. Say the things you need to actually say to that person while you have the time together. The, the counterpart to me to that sense of restlessness and urgency is that you also hit like the high points too. You know, even in Say It Like You Mean It, like there's a freedom in having someone say it. What is it? Love me like you mean it. Leave me like you mean it. Live like you mean it. Like to me, that it has such weight to it. You just want someone to step forth with honesty. Carrie Brownstein, while we have you, I'm, I'm a big fan of Portlandia. <laughs> I'm not surprised, Scott, because to me, like yeah. this is... Portlandia and NPR, where we've been holding hands for years, haven't we? <laughs> we're like, we're cousins. Uh, alas, yes. The air is humid in Portland, Oregon. I close my eyes and try to imagine growing up in a place like this, living with the feeling that I'll never be able to leave. This is a closed briefing, there's no press. Uh, no, they're good. Uh, we had the option between body cameras and podcasters. I went with the podcasters, my kids love them. But I, I, I love the way Portlandia makes fun of all that. Yeah, I think ultimately I look through life and phenomena with a very absurdist lens. And I really prefer ultimately to see it with humor and to be able to make fun of ourselves, to, to sort of know our failings, yeah. know the ways that we're silly and be able to acknowledge it. That's a shared language where all of us have our, our flaws out in the open and we sort of examine them and laugh at ourselves and at each other. That to me is a real joy. How do you two write a song together? Yeah, I mean, I think we use multiple ways. Sometimes we just sit in a room and play guitar together and see what happens and jam on something. Sometimes Carrie will start a song and ask me to come in and, and sing on a part with her. Sometimes I'll start a song and, and Carrie will completely rewrite some of the music underneath it and write guitar over it. So I think we use a lot of different strategies, but it's all about making the song 
what we build together for Slater Kinney, kind of the world that we have that we think is is the Slater Kinney world, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, almost 30 years ago, we came up with a sonic vernacular, mostly because we were self-taught. We had these detuned guitars, playing these kind of half-formed, inverted guitar chords, and that became the lexicon with which we wrote. And I think we still return to that, but there is just something about the two of us in a room together, you know, speaking this sort of esoteric language. And it's, there's always a little sourness there. When you're in C-sharp, Occasionally, there's some dissonance, and I think we like playing with that dissonance because then it allows moments that are melodious to really, really shine. How do you uh, keep a creative partnership going for 30 years? I think we're grateful for each other's talent and ideas. You know, we've done other things in our lives that are, are great. I'm a fan of Portlandia too, but you know, I, I acknowledge that I think what we do together is, is unique. I've realized this recently that she's kind of an ongoing mystery to me. <laughs> that to me seems like a good basis for any relationship, creative or otherwise. Just having something ineffable about the other person that you're always trying to uncover. And I think that really helps with the creativity. Because I just want to figure her out. <laughs> so we have to keep returning to the writing. Carrie Brownstein and Corin Tucker of Slater Kinney, their new album, Little Rope, out now on tour soon. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you so much. Thanks, Scott. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories, more at Staples Stores or staples.com. This is NPR. Thanks for joining us this morning here on 90.9 WBUR. It is 14 degrees in Boston, coming up on 9 o'clock as Weekend Edition continues. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Celebrity Series, with Takach Quartet performing music by Haydn, Beethoven, and Nogutula Nguanyama, February 16th. CelebritySeries.org and Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Become a certified psychoanalyst and earn your doctorate in psychoanalysis. Better understand how you can help your patients develop emotionally fulfilling lives. All prior master's degrees qualify for psychoanalytic training. Now accepting applications for fall. BGSP.edu. On last week's Wait, Wait, it became clear that the rules of our games are somewhat flexible. Like roaches. I'm going to give it to you, wolf spiders. Wait, what? And Peter Sagal will probably bend over backwards to make sure actor David Oyelowo wins our game. I mean, he played MLK. Join us for the news quiz that plays it loose. That's Wait, Wait from NPR.
Saturdays and Sundays at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, elections around the world this year. Some of our correspondents will tell us what to look for. And later, big endorsement in New Hampshire just before primary votes are cast. NFL playoffs. Detroit hasn't ranked so high since Diana Ross and the Supreme sang Baby Love. And Kava Akbar's new novel about a writer who is looking for a way to go on. The idea that we could store our intelligence in our stories to family members that we would never know. That's as close as I know of any human being ever achieving corporeal immortality. First, we have our newscast. Today is Saturday, January 20, 2024. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. With the New Hampshire presidential primary vote now three days away, former GOP presidential hopeful Senator Tim Scott has turned his back on fellow South Carolinian Nikki Haley, rallying Granite State voters for former President Donald Trump. Is this Donald Trump country? Vivek Ramaswamy, who also suspended his bid, has also endorsed Trump. For their part, Nikki Haley's camp is going into Tuesday with a big New Hampshire endorsement. New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, who said if anybody cared what Tim Scott thought, he'd still be running for president. Now that former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie is out of the Republican presidential contest, his supporters are shopping around for another option. NPR's Tamara Keith has more from Manchester, New Hampshire. They knew he didn't have much of a shot at winning the nomination, but they liked his willingness to take on former President Trump directly and figured Christie would hang on at least through the New Hampshire primary. Now most Christie supporters we spoke to are giving former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley a closer look. That includes Alan Castellano. Well, since Christie is no longer in the race, uh, this is my next choice. Castellano is an independent who voted for Trump in 2016, but fears what it would mean for the country if he's elected again. Tamara Keith, NPR News, Manchester, New Hampshire. President Joe Biden and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu have spoken for the first time in nearly a month. The call yesterday came one day after Netanyahu reiterated he would not support a Palestinian state as part of any post-war plan. Biden, for his part, reaffirmed his commitment to working toward a two-state solution. The chasm between Biden and Netanyahu has expanded as pressure mounts on Israel to wind down a war that's already killed nearly 25,000 Palestinians. 
The BBC's Mark Lowen reports the Israeli prime minister is now facing criticism from a member of his war cabinet. Gadi Eisenkot, who is a member of Israel's war cabinet, a five-member war cabinet, former chief of staff of the Israeli Defense Forces, and uh, his son was killed in Gaza, in fact. Um, and he has accused Benjamin Netanyahu of not telling the truth uh, over his aims in Gaza of, of absolute victory over Hamas, uh, suggesting that that's not possible. He's favored a ceasefire uh, to uh, exchange to, for, for more progress on hostage negotiations. He has said that Mr. Netanyahu bears sharp and clear responsibility for leaving Israel exposed to the attacks on the 7th of October. The BBC's Mark Lowen reporting from Jerusalem. President Biden has signed a stopgap spending bill meant to keep the government running till early March. He's asked Congress to approve a $110 billion package for military spending and border security. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. With the frigid temperatures and low wind chills, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is asking residents to check on elderly and disabled neighbors and anyone who's experiencing homelessness. Boston's community centers are open today to serve as warming shelters. People are also being encouraged to use the public library in Copley Square as a place to warm up. Two shelters in the city, the Woods Mullen and the Southampton Street facilities, are open 24 hours a day. Lawyers for Harvard Medical School want a judge to throw out lawsuits filed by families of those who donated their bodies for medical education. The school's former morgue manager allegedly stole body parts from Harvard and sold them. WBUR's Ali Jarmanning reports. Harvard says that under state law, it's immune from any lawsuits related to its body donation program. But attorneys for the families are asking a judge to keep their lawsuit alive. Attorney Jonathan Sweet says there are still many unanswered questions. We're hoping to glean some insight into how this could have happened for so long to so many bodies inside the Harvard morgue under its supervision with outsiders coming in without any security and essentially shopping. Harvard's lawyers declined to comment. The judge has taken the case under advisement. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmani. City and town leaders are gathered for the second day of the Massachusetts Municipal Association's annual meeting. They're discussing Governor Healy's plan to ask the legislature to allow cities and towns to increase local taxes on meals and lodging and to impose an additional motor vehicle excise surcharge. The state Republican Party says the plan places an unfair burden on taxpayers. Healy outlined her plan Friday, a day after telling reporters she would not seek additional state taxes or fees. Last night, for the first time this season, after a 20-game undefeated streak at the Garden, the Celtics lost a home game. The Seas lost to the Nuggets, 102-100. to Tonight, the Bruins take on the Canadiens at the Garden. It is 14 degrees in Boston. Clouds, highs in the low 20s. Windchill values as low as zero. WBUR supporters include the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. 2024 is an extraordinary year for elections around the world. India, Indonesia, Mexico, South Africa, and of course the United States. A huge swath of the globe will vote in national elections what might these elections say about the strength or frailty of democracy? We're joined now by NPR correspondents from around the world. 
Ada Peralta is in Mexico City, Dia Hadid in Mumbai, India, and Frank Langford, NPR's Global Democracy Correspondent in Washington, D.C. Let me thank you all for being with us. Thank you. Thank you, Great Scott. to be here, Scott. Frank, let's begin with a sense of the significance of this year and some of what you'll be alert for. Yeah, I think this year, as you're pointing out, it's the biggest one for elections that anybody can remember. It's at least 70 countries, billions of voters eligible. And it's not just the numbers, Scott, it's the context. This is coming when democracy has been in decline for the last 17 years. That's according to Freedom House, a think tank here in D.C. You're seeing more and more disinformation campaigns, the specter of A.I., And I think what you hear is people are very nervous about the integrity of elections. And there's also a concern that parties may win democratically and then turn around and actually try to undermine the democratic systems and the checks and balances in those countries. So I think people are going to be watching this year incredibly closely. Let me turn to you now, Dia and Ader. How do you see these issues in uh, the part of the world you cover? Well, look, I feel like the conversation in my patch has moved on from the mechanics of elections. First, because the bad guys have become super sophisticated. They've gotten really good at playing the democracy game, at rigging elections through legal maneuvers or with lots of money. And the U.S. and the international community have often gone along, said those elections were good enough. But people have also grown disillusioned with the democratic process because it hasn't fixed some of the most pressing problems in Latin America. And This uh, is among the most unequal regions in the world, and so many countries in Latin America are facing awful insecurity. And I think that's when leaders like the president of El Salvador emerge. Nayib Bukele doesn't pretend to be a Democrat. He's running for re-election in February, despite the fact that the Constitution clearly doesn't allow re-election. But the latest polls show that Salvadorans don't care. You know, why is that? Because he solved... During his first term, he solved one of the biggest problems they had. He threw nearly 70,000 people in jail with either no legal process or an inadequate legal process. And that meant that Salvadorans uh, were no longer being extorted and they're no longer being killed by gangs on the streets. So, you know, there's a saying that I keep hearing here in, in Central America, and they say, we can't eat democracy. And so those democratic norms that the West obsesses over doesn't mean much in people's regular lives. Dia Hadid, what about South Asia? It's interesting what Ada is saying. Um, This is the world's most populous region, and it's largely on paper democratic. It has institutions bequeathed to it by the British who once colonizes this region. And here we've got three giants voting or having voted this year, Bangladesh, Pakistan, and India. And what we see is each country is upholding elections, but there's an erosion of democratic standards. And it kind of echoes what Ada is saying in the sense of the mechanics might be all right, but what happens in between those elections is key. In fact, though, if I jump to Bangladesh first, where there are elections in early January, there was a wide ranging crackdown on the opposition um, before people went out to vote. And in fact, citizens were treated to the spectre of the ruling party competing against itself and obviously winning. In Pakistan, where critics say the military hold ultimate power, there's also been a crackdown on what appears to be the most popular party, which is led by the former Prime Minister Imran Khan. But elections are still happening, you see. I have to ask, is the U.S., given the events of um, 
January 6, 2021, and subsequent investigations still considered to be a kind of living example of democracy across the globe? Uh, Scott, no, I don't think so. People follow American politics extremely closely around the world, but especially in Europe, where I last reported. And with the majority of Republicans supporting Trump, a man who lied about winning the election, tried to overturn those legitimate results, that would be sort of the definition of being anti-democratic. And so I think people are watching this election very, very closely to see what happens. You know, will there be another attempt to try to overturn the results? Or if Americans in the end vote for Donald Trump and he wins, this is someone who's been pretty clear that there are a number of democratic norms that he wants no part of. Ader? I think it becomes even more complicated. Um, I mean, the dysfunction of American democracy has really given anti-democratic forces a lifeline, but it's what's also happened after January 6th. Uh, and I'll take you back to El Salvador because El Salvador, it's a huge deal here in Latin America. People look at it as a model. And President Bukele in El Salvador consistently says, look at the U.S. and look how human rights groups and, and the United States criticize me for going after the opposition. But right now, the United States is prosecuting a former president and the leading presidential candidate for the Republican Party and Donald Trump. And so President Bukele in El Salvador uses this to claim hypocrisy. And it seems to carry weight with the population. Frank Langfitt, there's been um, a rise in populism in the United States and also in much of Europe. How does that figure into the elections this year? I think it's very important. Election really to watch, which Americans won't usually focus on, is European Union parliamentary elections. 27 members of the EU. And I think the group to watch there is there's this group called the Identity and Democracy Group. It's a collection of right-wing populist parties. Right now, it's the sixth largest in the parliament. It's on track to become the third largest party. Some of those parties are very friendly to Vladimir Putin. And if they win big, there's a concern that they will try to push for some kind of settlement, undermine support for Ukraine. And I think the concern there is Putin could come out in some ways doing relatively well after this bungled invasion. And many people look at the Ukraine story as a democracy story. It's a sovereign nation, a democracy that was attacked by an authoritarian country. And what a lot of people in Europe absolutely don't want to see is that kind of behavior rewarded. Ada, what about populism in Central America, South America? So look, here in Mexico, we're having a presidential election and a lot of pro-democracy advocates are really worried. Uh, the president here, Andres Manuel López Obrador, is a populist. He can't run for re-election, but he's handpicked a successor. And he is about to give another go right before leaving office to what he calls reforms to the Electoral Commission. Essentially, he wants to gut the commission. And in his term, López Obrador has said, forget these institutions. The way I'm going to help the people is to take the money we spend on fair elections or on transparency and give it to the people. And his administration has actually cut checks to everyone, single mothers, students, the elderly. And right now, his hand-picked successor, Claudia Sheinbaum, is leading in the polls by a huge margin. Dio, let me turn to you. India, the world's largest democracy, the most populous nation in the world. I feel the need for a separate question. What is the state of democracy and that part of democracy that relies on freedom of expression under Prime Minister Modi? Well, Scott, I've been speaking to many critics of the Prime Minister Narendra Modi and his style of rule, and yet their unequivocal 
in that India remains a democracy and a democracy where parties can test and run for elections and really challenge each other at the ballot box. That remains strong. The issue is prominent critics aren't sure how much of India's legacy as a secular state with equal rights for all can survive under a third term of Narendra Modi. And that third term is almost inevitable. He is a wildly popular figure and he has certainly tapped into a yearning among many in India to see something of their faith and identity and religious practice reflected in the most senior person in the country. But I'm also meeting people who are on the fringes of Hindu nationalism who are unhappy with Narendra Modi and unhappy with the BJP because they think it's too soft. They want a harder line against India's minorities, Muslims, Christians, Jews and others. They want to see Hindu rights being elevated in a more robust and aggressive way. And the critics that I'm speaking to just aren't sure how much of India's sense of equality, fairness before the law, its institutions itself are going to survive another assault. Hmm. Let me ask you all, is there, what about bright spots? There's a glimmer of hope for democracy in my patch. Uh, Guatemala just inaugurated a pro-democratic reformist president. And just before elections last summer, all I heard was desolation. Everyone thought the game was rigged. Everyone thought the same old people would win. And instead, democracy won. I know people are very despondent about democracy around the world these days and, and with good reason, but there are very bright spots. And one of the most obvious one is Taiwan. We just saw recently an election in which the Taiwanese defied the threats of mainland China and gave the Democratic Progressive Party a third straight term in the presidency. And of course, Taiwan is probably the next big battleground over democracy and sovereignty. I'm not a cynic. And this goes beyond covering South Asia. I covered the Arab Spring and I saw people demand the right to decide their own leaders with their bodies. People who are denied democracy and then given it really don't take it for granted. It's often the reverse. I'm always struck by the apathy of people who come from democratic countries who don't quite understand what other people are fighting for. We want to thank all of you, Ada Peralta in Mexico City, Dia Hadid in Mumbai, Frank Langfitt, NPR's Global Democracy Correspondent. Thanks so much. Thanks for doing it, Scott. Thank you, Scott. You're welcome, Scott. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918. Coming up in about 10 minutes, you'll hear about a chorus of professional singers and people with dementia performing as part of a support group for people dealing with memory loss. That and more ahead on Weekend Edition. And Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me comes your way at 10 o'clock here on WBUR. It's 15 degrees in Boston, highs in the low 20s, wind chill values as low as zero. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash. Family-owned since 1966, offering Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited, designed to keep your car Scrub-A-Dub clean anytime you want. And Auschwitz, not long ago, not far away. 
with over 700 artifacts from the Holocaust, opens this March in Boston. TheAuschwitzExhibition.com. I'm Louise Schiavone with these headlines. President Biden has signed a stopgap spending bill meant to keep the government running until early March. He's asked Congress to approve a $110 billion package for military spending and border security. Tens of thousands more student loan borrowers had their debts canceled as the week ended. The president approved another $5 billion more in student loan debt release. On Wall Street at week's end, the S&P 500 closed at a record high, rallying 1.2 percent to 4,839. The Dow was up 395 points and the Nasdaq jumped 255. I'm Louise Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Viking, dedicated to creating travel experiences for the thinking person with programs designed for cultural enrichment on board and on shore. Learn more at viking.com. From Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases, and supporting land conservation initiatives. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Former President Donald Trump got a huge endorsement last night ahead of the crucial New Hampshire primary. He's a senator from South Carolina. He's a fantastic man, Tim Scott. Senator Tim Scott appeared on stage with Trump at a rally in Concord as he looks to finish off his competitors, specifically Nikki Haley, Former president is leading the polls in New Hampshire, but she may be closing in on him. Last night's endorsement is already fueling speculation that Tim Scott could become Trump's choice for running mate. And Pierre's Franco Ordonez is covering the campaign. Franco, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Scott. Number of reasons why this is a particularly significant endorsement, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, there's so many. I mean, you mentioned one, and that's him potentially being a running mate. You know, Scott dropped his own bid for the White House in November, and at the time, he said he had no plans to endorse a candidate. You know, Trump was courting him. Haley was courting him. So was DeSantis, a source told me. You know, Scott is popular. He's influential. He's also the only black Republican in the Senate. You see, we need a president who doesn't see black or white. We see a president who sees Americans as one American family. We need Scott, this is a really big blow to Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley appointed Scott to the Senate when she was governor of South Carolina. And Scott also enjoys more support in their shared home state, you know, which is an important one in the primary calendar. You know, it's a big win for Trump. And just one more thing, you know, Elise Stefanik of New York, she was also in New Hampshire yesterday, kind of warming up the crowd. She's also in the Veep Stakes, you know, as a potential running mate. Nikki Haley is still behind Donald Trump in the polls, but but she may have her best prospects in New Hampshire, right? 
Yeah. One reason is that Republicans in New Hampshire are generally more moderate, they're more traditional, fiscally conscious. But perhaps a bigger variable is the independent voters who in here can pick what party's primary they want to vote in. And they're expected to vote in the Republican primary because that's where the action is. Plus, it's the first in the nation primary, and they really don't kid mm -hmm. around about that in New Hampshire. Here's how the state's former attorney general, Tom Rath, explained it. We understand that our vote in this primary is probably our most significant political possession. And we take our role very, very seriously. Now, Haley's trailing Trump by over 10 points in the polls. But again, it's really hard to predict how many of those independent voters will show up on Tuesday. And what about Ron DeSantis? Because he, he actually bested Haley by a couple of points in Iowa. He did, but he's just not much of a factor in New Hampshire. DeSantis invested so much of his energy and his money in Iowa, but didn't pay much attention to the Granite State. I mean, he's not even in the state this weekend. He's instead making appearances across South Carolina. And he's polling in the single digits. While Haley, she's kind of bet it all on New Hampshire and is polling around 30 percent. This is really a two-person race. Nikki Haley has been uh, pointedly sharper talking about Donald Trump. She had been reluctant to do that for much of the campaign. Yeah, I mean, her campaign is on the line here, and she kind of has to turn up the heat. Now, I wouldn't say it's been red hot, but her attacks have been stronger, you know, saying Trump's throwing a temper tantrum, that he's lying about it. her supporters. You know, this is the best chance for Haley to stop his campaign from running away with the nomination. The next two states are South Carolina and Nevada, where there are more Trump-style voters. So if someone's going to rise from Trump's shadow, it really, really has to be here. And Pierce Franco, we're doing this. Thanks so much. Thanks, Scott. As the war between Israel and Hamas enters its fourth month, Palestinians fleeing the violence have packed themselves into the southernmost major city in Gaza. The UN estimates 1.7 million people are taking shelter in and around Rafah. They are living in tents or makeshift shelters made of wood and nylon. And VR producer Anas Baba found the living conditions to be desperate as he reported back to NPR's Becky Sullivan in Tel Aviv. The tents and shelters in Rafah have sprung up everywhere over the past few weeks, on the streets, in the courtyards of hospitals and schools, on once empty patches of desert. A few have even set up on top of destroyed buildings, like Samir Saleh, who evacuated Gaza City in October and now lives with his family in a tent atop a flat piece of rubble. He felt this spot was safe because it had already been targeted, so they won't hit it again, he hopes. The population in Rafah has soared since mid-December. More than half the population of Gaza has squeezed into this small area to try to avoid the fighting. Juliet Tuma, a spokesperson for the UN agency that aids Palestinians, visited Rafah earlier this week. So you look outside the window of one of our facilities and all I could see was the sea of these makeshift structures. Before the war, tents in Gaza were for recreation, like a family day at the beach. A high-quality tent might have cost 200 shekels, or about $50. Now, prices are much higher, and that's if you're lucky enough to get an actual tent. Many people have had to buy planks of wood and sheets of nylon to cobble together their own makeshift shelter. 
Palestinians and Rafa told NPR they're spending the equivalent of up to $800 on tents or the supplies to make them. Yasser al-Amor shows off his shelter built up against a concrete fence. The other walls are thin, translucent plastic sheets. The ceiling is a rug. The only things inside are thin mattresses and blankets. He pulls out a few scraps of wood, like extra bits left over from a two-by-four. The situation is dire, he says. May God help us. The conditions inside the tent areas are terrible, Palestinians say. It's crowded. There's no toilets or running water. Nighttime temperatures have dipped into the 40s, and it's been raining. Most tents aren't waterproof. There are pests, too, says Ayman Bar, who evacuated to Rafah from the Maghazi refugee camp in central Gaza. You can see worms already here. Bugs and lizards are everywhere. I killed a snake inside the tent the other day, he says. Bar has 13 children. The family's first tent cost about $500, he said. Then he had to buy supplies for a second tent to help house the rest of his family. It's been 10 days since he last had a shower. All I want is to live in dignity and freedom and to be back home, he says, if only it's still standing. Palestinians in the tent areas say that aid workers have surveyed them about their needs, but aid is slow in coming. Some say they waited weeks for a tent or shelter materials. Others have received nothing. I asked Juliet Tuma of the UN how many tents they have handed out so far. We've given some, but we we ran out early on and we're not getting enough in and we should be getting more in. The UN estimates a shortage of 50,000 family-sized tents in Gaza. Some of them may be waiting just on the other side of Gaza's borders. Earlier this month, U.S. Senator Chris Van Hollen visited the Egyptian side of the Rafah border crossing, where aid is inspected by Israelis before it enters Gaza. There, the senator saw a warehouse full of humanitarian goods that had been rejected by the Israelis. Workers told him that included tents. The speculation was that uh, some of them had metal poles in them and somehow uh, those could be used uh, by Hamas to fashion weapons, um, uh, despite the fact that you have thousands and thousands of Gazans uh, without shelter uh, as the weather gets very cold. Israel says it must inspect the aid to ensure that nothing is stolen by Hamas for military use. The UN and other aid groups have called for a smoother inspection process. The Israeli bombardment has left much of Gaza in ruins. Some estimates say that 80% of buildings in northern Gaza are damaged or destroyed, and the UN now says that at least half a million Palestinians no longer have a home to return to. Samir Saleh, the man who set up his tent on a destroyed building, said he was wealthy before the war. He owned a house in a town just south of Gaza City, along with two apartments nearby. But the bombardment started quickly and has continued intensely, he said. We had to run only with the clothes we were wearing, he says. Saleh doesn't know what the condition of his homes are now. Instead, his family lives in a simple shelter made of nylon and eight planks of wood. He doesn't even have a mattress. He sleeps only on a blanket he got from an aid group. A cousin gave him another one to stay warm. With Anas Baba and Rafa, I'm Becky Sullivan, NPR News, Tel Aviv.
When people age and begin to lose their memory, they can become isolated or lose touch with community and family. As Carrie Sheridan of member station WUSF reports, music can help build those connections again. She visited a special choir in Sarasota, Florida, which pairs professional singers with people who have dementia. These singers wear bandanas, checkered shirts, and cowboy boots for this choral performance at a community center. About half are people who have some form of dementia. The other half are professional singers with Key Corral. For all of them, Alzheimer's is personal. My mother-in-law has Alzheimer's dementia, my grandfather did, and I know how important music is in their lives and how it can kind of unlock portals that might be closed. That's Joseph Calkins, artistic director of Key Corral. This chorus is part of a support group for people with memory loss. It's called Where Are My Keys? And as conductor, Calkins has fun with it. They've been practicing tunes with a Western theme for this performance. He hams it up for the audience in between songs. I find the best way to double your money is to fold it in half, put it back in the pocket. I think that's what John Denver did when he made this classic. Calkins leads weekly practice sessions that culminate in a performance about every two months. In the middle row sit Bob and Amy Farrell. They've been singing together for about six decades. Bob is 89 now and has mild cognitive impairment. His wife Amy is 84. She's a retired teacher, plays violin, and sang in many musicals. And the neat thing is, Bob loves to sing too, and he remembers the words of songs. Mm -hmm. He may not remember what he did 10 minutes ago, or who we talked to, or what he said, or some conversation. But if you noticed while we were singing, he seldom looked at the words. He had all this stuff memorized. Me, I'm looking at the words and looking at the conductor. But it's really interesting the way the memory works. You just never know. Bob says somehow he just knows the words. Once I've learned the song, you don't, you don't, how would you forget it? Because, you know, it's up there, hopefully. <laughs> and usually it is. Lynn Lash sings alto with Key Corral. She is paired with a woman who doesn't sing but smiles broadly as she shakes a homemade instrument. It's a uh, plastic water bottle with corn kernels in it and amazingly sounds like a maraca. Lash is not only a singer, but worked as a music therapist in a psychiatric hospital for 25 years. Music sparks something in all of us. So when I see these folks singing, it brings them to some time in their lives. And sometimes you can even get them talking about that time. So music is wonderful as a therapeutic tool. Singing groups like this have popped up across the country. Research shows music therapy may help people with dementia sustain brain function for longer. It may also build social connections and may even allow new skills to be learned. Conchetta Tomeno is executive director at the Institute for Music and Neurologic Function in New York. She has been studying the power of music on the aging brain since the late 1970s, when she played her accordion for people with advanced dementia. By now, she says, it should be common practice to use personalized, familiar music to not only engage and be able to connect with people, but to give them a chance to sustain function for a longer period of time, which some of my early research had actually shown. 
While there's no cure for Alzheimer's or dementia, Tomeno says music therapy, whether singing or playing instruments, gives people a chance to interact on a normal level and with joy. For NPR News, I'm Carrie Sheridan in Sarasota, Florida. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Cooking can be one of life's simpler joys, especially if it's a recipe that reaches back to your grandmother or B.J. Lederman, who writes our theme music. When the souffle is risen or those cookies are rested and you finally get to take that first taste, ha! Unless, of course, that recipe comes from an elected official. Our next guest took the time to test a number of real recipes that come from senators and representatives, or those of your grandparents or great-grandparents. He is Bennett Ray, author of the blog Cooking with Congress, and joins us now from Claremont, California. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Scott. Tell us about a couple of these dishes, and and should we look out for them? (laughs) I would say do not try these at home, perhaps. Two of my favorites slash least favorites of the past year would be Anniversary Horseradish Salad uh, by Representative Glenn English and uh, Milk Toast by Representative Emmett O'Neill. I would say they kind of verge to the uh, theater of disgust in terms of food. (laughs) Sorry, that term's new to me, but go ahead. I'll use it a lot from now on, yes. (laughs) Yeah, uh, they've struck a chord with uh, me and my followers and fans out there as uh, truly absurd, almost anti-food. Horseradish salad, please. Or or not please, but can we please hear it? So this isn't a salad in the modern sense. There's no mm-hmm. greens. And this is a salad in the 60s, 70s, mid-century gelatin sense. Mm. So two boxes of lemon jello and lime jello, boiling water, a cup of mayonnaise, uh, crushed pineapple, a cup of cottage cheese. He specifies large curd cottage cheese, Uh, cream-style horseradish and pimento. And then you mix it all together and chill it, and it's supposed to serve 12 people and goes very well with baked ham, apparently, as in the recipe notes. It looks sort of like a dessert from the cartoon version of The Grinch, (laughs) Still Christmas. (laughs) Yes. Um, The flavor is somewhere in the kind of chunky wasabi fruitcake range. I'm not sure I've ever had a chunky wasabi fruitcake. Count yourself lucky. Uh, And I'm not sure I'd want to. (laughs) Um, It's almost beautiful in that mid-century way, but as soon as you take a bite, the mayonnaise and the jello and the pimentos combine to make a truly abhorrent uh, culinary experience. Mm, Okay. And uh, another recipe, please. Milk toast. Yeah, so this is actually where the term milk toast came from, like M-I-L-Q-U-E toast. Mm -hmm. Um, Because the dish is weak and insipid, I can confirm that uh, based on this old recipe, which is essentially six pieces of bread toasted hard, uh, according to the recipe, and then Mm -hmm. you pour hot boiling milk over those six pieces, put a pat of butter on it, sprinkle some red pepper and salt, and call it a day. Why? I mean, what what, what do you think some of these recipes reveal about uh, public officials? The absurdity, you know, politicians are so, they're usually so conscious of everything they say and everything they do, and they're so politic, and then they'll just offer up diabetic cucumber salad as their favorite food. It felt very out of character. 
they reveal that they might have inhuman taste buds. I salute your patriotism, but I wonder, why don't you try recipes from French or Indian politicians? They might be a little more promising. My wife has been telling me to do more recipes that she can actually stomach. So, <laughs> But for now, I've been uh, really fascinated with what seems to be the last bastion of unity between Republicans and Democrats, which is these recipes and their taste buds. Find that very moving. Bennett Ray is author and chef of the blog, Cooking with Congress. Thanks very much and uh, bon appetit. Thank you, Scott. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Teachers in Newton earned a court order to end their strike and go back to work. School was canceled yesterday after teachers voted to strike for a new contract. Negotiations are scheduled to resume this morning. Massachusetts General Hospital is asking again for state approval to add 94 inpatient beds. Hospital leaders say they don't have enough space to take care of all the sick patients who need care. Previously, state officials approved a $2 billion construction project at Mass General but denied a request to add beds. A two-day free festival starts next hour in Gloucester. The third annual Gloucester's So Salty Festival features ice sculptures, music, art activities, salty treats, and special offers and experiences at local businesses. It's organized by the Cape Ann Museum. It's 15 degrees in Boston. Clouds today, highs in the low 20s. Windchill values as low as zero. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Earn your doctorate in psychoanalysis. Better understand your clients, build your clinical skills, and advance your career in this psychoanalytic training program. Master's graduates from all disciplines welcome to apply, now accepting applications for fall. Learn more at bgsp.edu. And Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress tickets at how do you see the world.com on last week's wait wait it became clear that the rules of our games are somewhat flexible like roaches i'm gonna give it to you wolf spiders oh. wait what i'm peter sagel we'll probably bend over backwards to make sure actor david oyelowo wins our game i mean he played in lk join us for the news quiz that plays it loose that's wait wait from npr Saturdays and Sundays at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Progressive. Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at progressivecommercial.com. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon, and it's time for sports. Oh, bad times at a beloved brand in sports journalism, NFL playoffs. Another round of the latest great rivalry, and uh, uh, is this a typo? The Detroit Lions, two wins away from the Super Bowl? Michelle Steele of ESPN joins us. Hi there, Michelle. Yes, it is real for Lions fans. Good morning, Scott. Well, we will get to that. I Sad news, my gosh. Sports Illustrated announced it's laying off most of its staff. 
This has been one of the great homes for journalism in America. Frank DeFord, Ralph Wiley, Sally Jenkins, Grant Wall, George Plimpton, for goodness sakes. <laughs> to be on the cover itself was considered history. What does this say about sports journalism? They had Robert Frost cover the All-Star game at one point, Scott. Uh, yeah, the last few years, I, though. I, I, have... John Updike, if I could go on. Sure, yeah. sure, you could go. It feels like it's building up to this if you've followed SI over the last few years because it's been very turbulent for that publication. You know, the ad market is shrinking. There have been multiple owners. And Friday, the union for the magazine's workers said most of its employees were laid off. You just feel so badly for them. They pour their hearts into this publication. Yeah. Now, the, the group that runs SI, it's called an arena group. They say they'll continue to run it on a skeleton staff for now or someone else will get the license to publish it. So it's not over, Scott, but it's greatly diminished. It's very sad, and nobody knows what's next. Yeah. All right, divisional playoffs in the NFL. Let's get to business. The Texans at Baltimore later tonight. Uh, the pack visits uh, the San Francisco 49ers. But the game, no question, Kansas City Chiefs play the Buffalo Bills. Is this the time the Bills finally get their playoff win against the Chiefs, or is this regrouping time? Yeah, well, if the Bills are going to slay the Dragon, as it were, in the Kansas City Chiefs, this is their best chance to do it. The thing is, Mahomes, Patrick Mahomes, he's 2-0 against Buffalo in the playoffs. The difference this time is that Mahomes is going to do something tomorrow he's never done, Scott. He's going to play a road game <clears throat> in the postseason. He's always been oh, home at Arrowhead. Right, because their record's so good, right. Yeah. Exactly. So I was in Kansas City this week. I listened to Mahomes. He sounds real upbeat about the challenge. He says he's friends with Josh Allen, and there's nothing quite like beating your friend. I have a hunch that Bill's fan, Scott, might have a snowball or two ready. Finally, how can you not root for the Detroit Lions this year? <laughs> when their first postseason game more than 30 years last week, uh, they faced Tampa Bay just two wins away from the Super Bowl, aren't they? Yeah, you know, 12 teams have never won the Super Bowl. Three of them are playing this weekend, uh, including the Lions. And boy, their fans have gone through so much. Uh, all of their fans would, of course, love to see him win a Super Bowl. But for one fan, Scott, it's a little more urgent. 83-year-old Larry Benjamin, he's a lifelong fan. He is in hospice right now. Mm -hmm. And when he saw Lions wide receiver Amon Ross St. Brown dye his hair blue, he asked his caregivers to do the same thing to his hair. And his son posted the picture to social media. It went viral. St. Brown, the player, called him, sent him a jersey. He told the local ABC station, I tell everybody I'm living on borrowed time. Oh, God I'm going to do everything I can to enjoy these remaining days. And Scott, he's hoping to live to see the day that the Lions make the Super Bowl. I think uh, if you don't have a dog in this hunt, it's easy to root for the Lions. It's easy to root for Larry. How can you have a heart and not and not root for the Lions? Our friend Michelle Steele of ESPN, thanks so much. Sure. Oregon is rolling out psychedelics. The state approved a broad decriminalization plan in 2020, and licensed treatment centers started to offer psilocybin this past summer. Anyone can make an appointment, including those who just want to do it recreationally, but the measure setting up the legal framework said part of the purpose was mental health and well-being. From Portland, Oregon, Dina Pritchip checks in on how the program pursues that goal. Please note her report contains detailed descriptions of domestic violence. Sandra says that when she was in her 20s, she was in an abusive marriage. We're not using her full name so as not to identify other family members. She says she got out, built a family, 
and didn't really talk or even think about what had happened until last year. I was listening to a podcast because I loved some true crime. And it was the coroner talking about this woman who was beaten so severely and she had her orbital bones broken in her face. Sandra says those were the bones her ex-husband had broken in her face when he beat her. She says hearing that story triggered her first PTSD episode and things just got worse. Every day was reliving that pain over and over and over again. Panic attacks. My seven-year-old knows grounding techniques to get me out of a panic attack. She says she tried therapy and medication, but nothing worked. So in December, she flew to Oregon. Part of the reason Oregon legalized psilocybin was to help people like Sandra. Studies have shown psilocybin to have promise for treating anxiety, depression, and end-of-life distress. But while Oregon based their guidelines and maximum doses on existing data, many in the field say there's still a lot to be learned about how best to achieve those results in the real world. We are talking about what kind of outcomes do we have with what level of dose. Jeanette Small is a psychedelic facilitator. She says on Zoom calls and in-person meetings, people in the field are sharing what's working, what's not, and what patterns are emerging. What we have already seen is that people with complex PTSD, people with a lot of psychological wounding, generally speaking, will need to start at a much lower dose. Other facilitators report that people on medications like SSRIs may need a higher dose. But the thing is, all this could be best described as anecdata. It's experience and observations, not clinical trials with carefully selected subjects and tracking. It's not even until next year that service centers have to begin reporting adverse reactions or basic information on the number of clients served. There are ethical considerations when it comes to treating people in what's essentially a real-time experiment. But facilitators, like Jeanette Small, say the good it can do outweighs the unknowns. When people are struggling with things that we do not have anything else that works for them, you know, then the question is really, what is the more ethical perspective here? But some worry that the enthusiasm for psilocybin may be outpacing the science that can guide how best to use it. Daniel Nikolai is a member of the Oregon Psychiatric Physicians Association, which opposed legalization. We're certainly not saying we don't want psilocybin to be medicine. We're just saying we want the research in place. As a psychiatrist, Nikolai isn't pushing for the measure to be overturned. But he wants there to be more data collection about how this is playing out in Oregon, as well as more research for psilocybin treatment generally. I mean, we have too much business in the mental health field, you know, especially post-COVID. People are, are, are really, really struggling, so we don't support. We want more tools out there. And many clients report that this tool is helping. Sandra ended up at a service center in Portland to try to treat her PTSD. And using psilocybin, she says she went back to the night her ex-husband almost killed her. And I could see his, his fist just go up. But every time it went down to hit me in my face, it just turned to these beautiful leaves, leaves just everywhere. And I, I think in my head, it changed that memory for me. Sandra had gone to therapy, downloaded apps, repeated affirmations that she was safe and strong and loved. But she says it took psilocybin for her to actually feel that and believe it. For NPR News, I'm Dina Pritchett in Portland, Oregon. Cyrus Shams is both the son of the Middle East and the American Middle West, who's been instilled with tragedy. 
His mother, Roya, was aboard Iran Air Flight 655, which was shot down by mistake by the U.S. Navy during the Iran-Iraq War in 1988. He and his father, Ali, wind up moving to Indiana, where Ali works, overworks, really, at a poultry farm and dies from a stroke. Cyrus becomes a drunk, drug addict, and a poet, not a totally unprecedented combination. But at the age of 30, he is sober, restless, and still in Indiana and thinks there might be one path left to deliver himself to a kind of immortality. Martyr is the name of the debut novel from Kaveh Akbar. He's also poetry editor of The Nation, teaches at the University of Iowa, Randolph College, and Warren Wilson College. He joins us now from Iowa City, Iowa. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. And that that flight, of course, is a novel, but but Iran Air Flight 655 was shot down in 1988, wasn't it? It was. It was. It was shot down by the USS Vincennes, a U.S. naval warship. They say that they mistook it for um, a military plane and they shot it down and all 290 passengers on board were killed, including 66 children. Does Cyrus feel doomed or spared? I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think one can feel doomed and spared, doomed to the same ineffable resting place that awaits us all, and also spared from dying of addiction, from dying aboard that flight with his mother, so both. Cyrus has a poetry project in mind. Uh, is he hoping that will deliver meaning or immortality or, or what? Art is a mechanism by which people have sought immortality for millennia. The idea that we could store our intelligence and our stories in language, meaning in each other, outside of our brains means that we could transmit stories to family members that we would never know, who would be born after we died, right? And that's as close as I know of any human being ever achieving corporeal immortality. And so Cyrus is intensely interested in that. He's also interested in some kind of martyrdom, right? Not necessarily religious martyrdom or theological martyrdom, but martyrdom for a divine that might be more terrestrial, right? Whether it be justice or land or dignity or family um, or art. He's suicidally sad, but he doesn't want to waste his suicide. He had an uncle who was once the angel of death. That must leave an impression. Yeah. So the uncle in the book during the Iran-Iraq war, he has a job where every night after the battle, he gets on a horse and wears a long black robe. And he wants to give people a glimpse of the angel of something celestial and holy in their dying moments to uh, embolden them in their dying, to persuade them to die with dignity. He, that's his job. That's his job in the army. Does he hope it gives people meaning? The way the Iranian government yoked itself to cultural and religious ideas around martyrdom and harnessed those towards its own sort of propagandistic ends is a story that I only glance upon in this book, but could be the subject of, you know, a million graduate theses. I laughed out loud 
and maybe I shouldn't have, of some of the sections of the book where Cyrus has a part-time job to educate doctors in which he plays patients who have to get bad news. He's great at that. Mm -hmm. uh, am I right to think that this is probably not something he should be doing in his current frame of mind? <laughs> well, yeah, so Cyrus is a medical actor who doctors train giving patients bad news by giving Cyrus bad news, and then he plays all these different characters. And yeah, I mean, his best friend in the novel is named Z, and Z thinks that Cyrus shouldn't be doing it because he's not necessarily in a good state of mind for it. And I appreciate you for saying you found the book funny, too. I do hope that it doesn't feel like a relentlessly dour slog. I mean, my experience of life on the planet Earth is private joys amidst collective grief and private grief amidst collective joy. Addiction looms over this, this, this story almost as much as martyrdom. Cyrus at one point writes for a drunk, there's nothing but drink. There was nothing in my life that wasn't predicated on getting drunk. Which raises a difficult question. Does he see martyrdom as a way out with a little more, I don't know, a little more style? Sure, absolutely. I think that your two choices as a person in recovery are to relapse or to die sober. And you only really win recovery by dying sober, right? The, the entirety of your life is just a million trillion opportunities to relapse. I am a person in recovery. I've been sober for 10 years, but it can be exhausting. And I think that there is a part of Cyrus that feels very, very exhausted. May I say something just from a family who's been touched by this? Of course, we're talking. Good for you. 10 years, <laughs> good for you. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's the hardest thing I've ever done and the most worthwhile thing. And everything else is made possible by that. The cat on my lap, the phone in my hand, the book that we're talking about. You turn over the last page of this book, you know a lot more Iranian poetry than you did when you first started out. Was that also in your grand design? Well, I mean, uh, the, the poet Lee Young Lee says syntax is identity. Right, which means that the way that I talk is inflected by all of my geographies and all of my genealogies and all of my histories and every movie I've ever seen in the order that I see them and every book that I've ever read in the order that I read them. Right. And obviously Persian poetry looms large in my consciousness, as does Sonic Youth and EPMD and Erica Badu and Jean Valentine and all the other cultural reference that appear throughout the book. That particular regard for the Iranian poet Ferdowsi? Of course. There's a large biographical beat in the book that orbits him, but he's the great. He's the progenitor of so much else in Persian culture. The joke is every Iranian household has two books, the Quran and the Shahnameh, you know, Ferdowsi's great book, and only one of them gets read. <laughs> <laughs> the poet and now novelist Kava Akbar. He's written a novel, Martyr. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much, Scott. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Made in Cookware, partnering with chefs like Tom Colicchio to bring professional-grade cookware to restaurants and home kitchens. 
Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From SmartMouth, committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours, SmartMouth mouthwash, toothpaste, and more can be found nationwide at stores or at smartmouth.com. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Wait, wait, don't tell me is next at 10 o'clock. Voters in New Hampshire are gearing up to cast their primary votes. On Tuesday evening, live special coverage of the New Hampshire Democratic and Republican primaries starts at 7 here on 90.9 WBUR. Get closer to the issues as you get closer to your vote. It's 15 degrees in Boston. Highs in the low 20s today. Winchell values as low as zero. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Medical Center, modeling a new kind of excellence in healthcare built on clinical expertise and equity. Learn more about rewriting healthcare at bmc.org. I'm Robin Young. Italian Americans were so proud when New York Giants quarterback Tommy DeVito did his hand gesture. What a throw by DeVito! He's got a little beachies there. Staying alive. And Tommy does the Italian thing. <laughs> but some thought of stereotypes, past discriminations, lynchings. Next time, here and now. Listen Monday at noon on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.